Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today we're discussing a recent publication edited by Stephen Hadley, Willem Bowden, Megan O'Sullivan, and Peter Fever, all people I like and admire and know, called Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama, published recently on February the 15th. This podcast is coming out after the release date of handoff the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama. The book is filled with important contributions from people I like and admire, like some of the guests we're going to have on today, and it's really worthy of reading. We have three really interesting guests. We have Ambassador John Simon, we have Dr. Jendai Frazier, and we have Bobby Pittman, each who held senior roles at the NSC, worked on development issues, worked on Africa, Bobby worked at the Treasury Department. John Simon worked at the the State Department. He was at uh, OPIC, which is now the DFC, and he was also at USAID. So they worked on, I think, some of the most consequential issues in the Bush administration related to development in Africa. And I would argue that some of the biggest parts of George W. Bush's legacy were in global development and were in Africa. So we have the right people to talk about this today. I loved serving in the George W. Bush administration. It was a privilege. Working for Andrew Natsios at USAID was a professional privilege and was the best thing I've done in my career. I loved, I would, I would quit my job today and follow Andrew Natsios anytime, anywhere. So it's really great um, to have all of you on today to talk about the book, Handoff, the Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed Barack Obama. So obviously, John, Jendai, and Bobby you were proud to serve in the Bush administration. And obviously, I'm sure when folks came to you and said, you want to be a part of this, I'm sure you readily agreed to do it. But I'd be really curious to ask each of you to talk about what was important about this book and why do you think this book needed to be written? Let me start with you, Jendai, if I might. Sure. Well, I'm going to answer in two parts. One is from the point of view of a person. I was part of the Bush transition team from Clinton to President Bush at the National Security Council. And what we found when we got there was there was absolutely nothing there for us. There are no documents because all of the presidential documents go away. Um, The only thing we were able to do was interview some of the staff who remained at the NSC. This is no way for a major power in the world to transfer power between one president to the other. You absolutely need to understand what the previous administration was doing, where things were left, so that you can pick the ball up and continue to pursue America's interests. So that's one part. As a scholar, when I put on my scholar's hat, this is a treasure trove for scholars, for analysts. Um, You have 30 of the 40 uh, national security transition memoranda being declassified and declassified early. You know, normally these things take 30 or 40 years after an administration. And now, you know, within 20 years, you have them declassified. And so, you know, the scholars will be able to use this material as well as 
there is going to be a digital archive at the Center for Presidential History of Southern Methodist University, which also includes the attachments to these memoranda, as well as nine of the ones that did not make it into the book. And so I think for, for scholars and analysts, historians, um, this is really quite special. Bobby, why was this book written and what's important to you about this book? Thanks, Dan. From my perspective, and I was a career CIA analyst during the transition between the Clinton and the Bush administration, and I was one of those people that Jen is referencing that were scrambling to consolidate a lot of the information from our perspective, which in some ways was not the ideal perspective uh, of a handoff of some of the strategic foreign policy piece, right? We were a lot more in the details and hopefully it was helpful to policymakers that arrived like Jendai. But getting to see it from, from that uh, vantage when the president and Steve Hadley undertook this exercise in 2008, you know, I think a lot of us that were in the White House at the time understood the importance of properly cataloging the work that had been done and the explanation for that work, not in a argumentative way, but really in a, you know, as Jendai said, really making sure we captured all the moments, all the discussions, all the decisions, the information um, that those decisions were based on so that the next team could evaluate it and then decide which parts they wanted to carry forward and which things they, they might want to modify, but they could do that uh, with access to all the information. And so, you know, for, I think for me, it was really emotional and, and important in that 2008, you know, 2009, January, 2009 time period. And this book was a great exercise to kind of look back on that and remember, you know, frankly, a lot of work that was done in the white house in those final months to make sure all these resources were available, um, in the handoff to president Obama's team. So John Simon, why would, do you think this book was written? And what do you think is important about this book, John? Well, for one thing, I think the process that Bobby and Jendai described is something that Steve Hadley, who was the motivating force behind this book, was really proud of. I think probably is something that's relatively unique, hopefully something that will be continued from administration to administration. But the heavy effort that was done to make sure that information that would allow the people coming in to do their jobs effectively was made available to them with the context and with, with the support uh, that's something that sort of is uniquely American in terms of this concept of a peaceful transfer of power. Uh, and it's something that a lot of effort was put into at the end of the Bush administration, something that I think we would we would hope that would be replicated over and over again going forward. I think the other reason, though, that this book was written is that a lot of what was done during the Bush administration has persisted beyond. And I think there's a, a lot to be understood about why so many of these initiatives have had lives that live beyond the Bush administration and been embraced by both uh, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now even the Biden administration. Uh, and to understand the staying power of these efforts, it's helpful to understand how they were viewed at the end of the Bush administration. Jendai, you were at the center of so many of the important decisions on Africa in the Bush administration. And I would argue the Bush administration was a particularly consequential and positive administration vis-a-vis U.S. policy towards Africa. Could you talk a little bit about some of the policies that came about in the Bush administration vis-a-vis -vis Africa? And what were some of the drivers of the Bush administration's Africa policy? Sure. Um, I think it's important that the Bush administration's Africa policy basically flowed from the president's uh, national security strategy and policy generally. And so during the first term, it was very succinctly put, make the world better, safer, and freer. 
and betterment more prosperous through free markets, through work with education and health and reforming states. Safer meant, of course, security and stability. And then after 9-11, counterterrorism became a huge agenda item. And freer, of course, is make the world more democratic, you know, so that countries uh, will respect their citizens' voice and leaders will accept the choices of those leaders uh, as opposed to authoritarian. So better, safer, and freer than when it was implemented into the Africa policy. Many of those policies are covered in this chapter. When we talk about safer, it was really about having a more strategic approach, especially to conflict resolution, uh, to peacekeeping. We identified which were the major conflicts, Sierra Leone, Liberia, DRC, Angola, and others, North, South Sudan, that were going to be priorities um, for ending those wars. We also looked at, you know, what type of institutions we needed. So we looked at building those institutions, including AFRICOM, the new strategic engagement through the military. We looked at a new mission to the AU, the first non-African mission, which John Simon became ambassador to, USAU, uh, as well as looking at different types of programs like the ACODA or the, you know, Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Initiative, peacekeeping initiatives to build the capacity of African countries because they're going to be the lead in any type of conflict resolution effort. And those that's covered in uh, one of the chapters. And I know John and Bobby will talk about that agenda in terms of prosperity, you know, MCC, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, the Multilateral Debt Relief Initiative, the Stop the Debt Initiative before that, and many others. And then we'll talk about the freer, which is the consolidation of peace and stability. And, you know, really looking at how you can work with coalitions of partners, the uh, multilateral system, the UN, and to help these countries to actually consolidate that peace and move to more democratic governance. And so those were sort of the areas, you know, malaria, neglected tropical diseases, all of that was rolled in. And actually, I would have to say, you know, maybe boldly, but truthfully, that the Africa policy was the push for a new development agenda, really, because Africa was where we had to solve these challenges in the greatest numbers. And so it became the push and it really reflected President Bush. And then the final thing I will say is that one thing that we learned and that made a real difference was the president's leadership himself. That presidential level engagement, the national security, uh, whether it was Condi Rice or Steve Hadley, and then Condi and Colin Powell as secretaries of state, that presidential level expenditure of their personal capital um, made all the difference. President Bush met with over 40 heads of state at the White House, not to mention all of the ones he met in their own countries or at the UN General Assembly. So, you know, everyone knew that this was a priority to the president and that helped all of us who were supporting his agenda to get our work done. That's fantastic. Thank you, Jendai. Bobby, you worked at the CIA, you worked at the NSC or at Treasury or at the, and then you had a really interesting uh, life at the African Development Bank. And since then, you've had a career viewing Africa as a business opportunity. And I think we need, you know, thousands of folks like you and obviously Jendai Frazier is in a similar vein and John Simon's in a similar vein. You've all three of you kind of gone off and seen Africa as a business opportunity. But 
Could you talk about your time, Bobby, in the Bush administration and some of the insights from your time at the African Development Bank as seeing Africa as a business opportunity? A little bit to what Jendai was saying about prosperity and, you know, saying that this was something that ought to be at the front of the agenda. No, thanks. I, I think, you know, I'm going to kind of build on something uh, Jendai said, which which seems simple, but I think is very often misunderstood um, across public and private sector. I mean, you know, President Bush's disposition on Africa with African leaders was one of equals, one of peers. His discussion with heads of state in Africa was not a one-way discussion. It was a two-way discussion. And African leaders and leaders across Africa very much shaped President Bush's thinking and policy. And I think it's it sounds so simple, but I see it both um, as people think about policy toward Africa or with Africa and also in the business space, it's a lot about kind of flying in, telling people how they should operate and flying out um, and very much kind of dictating what are perceived to be best practices. I will use an example, you know, my current work, you know, I'm a partnered with Don Jazzy and Maven Records, by far the largest record label in Africa today, selling, you know, songs across the world. That structure is not the same as a structure in Los Angeles and in New York and in London, right? We actively work with Don Jazzy. We listened to him and we created a new structure that made the most sense to operate both in Nigeria and in the U.S. And it sounds simple, but most people don't do that. Most people fly in and tell Don Jazzy what he should be doing and why he's not doing things well, even though he's the best producer in Africa, right? And I think it's the same thing when you go back to, to the Bush administration policy. I think that shift which definitely started at the top and came down was just one of, you know, talking to our partners on the continent and working out the best strategies that that work for both sides. So it's a lot of custom strategies with all the stakeholders instead of imposing from the outside. And I think it goes to John's earlier point. That's what makes a lot of those solutions more durable as well. Right. They weren't necessarily linked to the views of one administration. Right. They really were part of a process um, of equals, discussing how to solve problems together and build institutions that could sustain kind of that problem solving effort. And I, I really do believe it's kind of that simple. And yet I believe that the vast majority of folks, both in the public policy space and in the private sector, often miss that right from the jump. And, and in my opinion, it's, it's why there's a, a lot more failures than successes. Thanks, Bobby. So, John, you were involved at AID, you were at the NSC, you were at OPIC, now the DFC, and then you represented the African Union. Jendai referenced a number of major development initiatives, and then you've made reference to them that there has been a through line since then. Could you talk about a couple of them that I think are legacy components of things that we handed off to the Obama administration? Absolutely. There are many more than just the ones I'll mention, but the ones that I think garner the most attention are, for instance, the Millennium Challenge Corporation. The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief or PEPFAR and the president's malaria initiative. And a common theme through all of them, which is what Bobby mentioned and Jendai referred to, was local ownership and country ownership. And so one of the fundamental premises of, of Bush development policy, which was articulated before, well, when the Millennium Challenge Corporation was announced at the speech the president gave at the Inter-American Development Bank, was that we want to work with countries and have them have responsibility for their own development. We are not imposing a development theory or a development model upon countries. We're, we're supporting them in the, in the development models they choose. And that was the underlying approach that these initiatives were largely built on. 
And like I say, when it came to something like Millennium Challenge Corporation, you know, it starts with a country developing its own compact for how it would deploy U.S. capital and then doing that in partnership with the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief was built largely on supporting local health systems and local organizations in terms of, of their ability to, to deliver the, the health commodities and the health care that was necessary to fight, fight the pandemic. And the President's Malaria Initiative similarly was built on partnership with countries on the ground. All three of these initiatives were predominantly active in Africa, although they had activities outside the continent. And all three of these initiatives are active today. Um, all of them have been scaled up under the Obama and then despite President Trump's best efforts during the Trump administration. And now I think they're all receiving significant support from the Biden administration. And it's because it's actually, I think, because of, of three things that, that they've had such staying power. One, like I said, is not only did they have the idea of country ownership embedded in them, but in fact, they are heavily supported by the countries themselves. So I think if you go to, to almost any country that's been a recipient of MCC or, or PEPFAR or PMI support, you will find leaders in that country, both within and without government and, and across you know, the political spectrum who are supportive of those efforts too. They produced results and they were very clear at the outset, the results they were seeking to produce and they were able to deliver on that. Uh, and that that made a big difference. And three, and this was this is also something that I think President Bush really sought in almost everything he sought to do, particularly in the developing world, is they moved the needle. This wasn't, you know, anything that the president sought to do, he sought to make a real difference. And when development initiatives were, were brought to the president, if they weren't able to to articulate how they would really change the, the trajectory uh, within the countries they were operating, they were, really weren't going to make any headway. And that is one thing that I think is also a common theme throughout uh, the, the president's approach. Great. Let's rewind the clock to, say, 2003, 2005, or 2007. So 20 years ago, 18 years ago, or 16 years ago. And if I said 2003, Africa, China, discuss, or 2005, Africa, China, discuss, or 2007, Africa, China, discuss, I'm not looking really for the specifics. I'd be interested in like, how did China in the developing world, I'm going to use Africa as, a, as sort of a shorthand for that, how did that come across your radar screen? So, Jendai, either in your role at the NSE, was this, was this a thing to use the modern parlance or not? And Bobby, I'd be curious to hear from your take on this. And John, I'd be curious to hear your take. But let me ask, turn to you first, Jendai. Sure. Um, China wasn't a thing as such. Hu Jintao was um, in power at that time. And we viewed China's role in Africa as primarily mercantilist, looking for resources, you know, uh, certainly working in Angola, and places with minerals and oil and stuff that could fuel their economic uh, engine at home. So really very much the balance of trade, of course, was on China's side, and it was primarily you know, raw materials, natural resources. The second way in which China would come across our radar screen is selling arms in Sudan. When we, you know, we were trying to stop the North-South uh, Civil War, and basically, Sudan, the government of Sudan's arms were coming from China primarily, and also the prospect of also arming um, Mugabe's people in Zimbabwe, um, the ZANU uh, party, ZANU PF party in Zimbabwe. So it was mainly through arms and through a more of a mercantilist approach. The United States um, really was the big diplomatic partner to Africa and then also the Europeans 
with a growing presence of countries like uh, India and others, um, not so much China, except for in those that narrow vein of arms and uh, mercantilist raw material acquisitions. Great. Bobby Pittman, if I said China 2003, Africa, China 2005, Africa, China 2007, Africa, discuss. Was China a thing and how did it come across your radar screen? Yeah, I mean, just just building on on Jendai's point um, and kind of from my lens, especially, you know, as I was overseeing when I was at Treasury, kind of our multilateral development bank policy, you know, and at that time, China uh, was really just starting to attempt to be active in places like the IDB, for example, where they didn't have a, a lot of historic activity. And most of that action, whether it was at the World Bank or the IDB or the African Development Bank, was about positioning to then be able to compete for contracts, right? So in my view, kind of building off Gendai's point on kind of mercantilism, I think also, you know, a lot of Chinese businesses looking for contract opportunities um, in, you know, whether it's Africa or Latin America. Um, and interestingly enough, and I know, Dan, you've worked a lot on this, you know, I think even when I look at the, the Chinese policy behind that, they often are aligning themselves to be as efficient as possible to support their businesses if they secure contracts, which unfortunately and ironically is not our approach uh, very often, right? Where, you, you know, you can be a U.S. company, win a bid, and then you have to go through a gauntlet at USXM that might take months. Whereas, you know, China has wired it so that if their company wins a bid, they're assured of the financing. Um, you know, it's, it's all very efficient. And so, you know, there's a little bit of an irony there that I think most of that overseas China interest, their policy piece is very wired to support that interest. I, th I think we still have some catching up to do there. But like I said, I know that's something, Dan, that you've, you've worked a lot on. So 15, 17 years ago, you, were you starting to bump up against, you were starting to bump up against us a little bit. I think it was very early. So I think at that point, we weren't really seeing it nearly at the scale that we've seen within the last decade. I mean, it was very, very, like I said, I mean, you know, essentially the Chinese kind of negotiating to even be able to participate in contracts at places like the IDB or AFDB. I mean, it was very, it was very, very early stages to Gendai's point, um, which then I think started building on some of that mercantilist interest and then adding, you know, some of the, the, the larger components from their commercial sector. I actually think the dates you picked are actually useful. So you think about 2003, that was when MCC and PEPFAR launched. At that time, Jenda, I remember you were trying to bring an end to the Africa World War around the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, you know, finding China on the continent would be very, very difficult. 2005 was the Glen Eagle Summit, was a multilateral debt relief initiative, again, driven by the United States, the UK, not a very active role in China, in the launch of the President's Valeria Initiative, Make Poverty History, very tough to find China there. 2007, I was at the Development Finance Corporation, well, what was then called OPIC, and I made a trip to Liberia to see President Alan Johnson Sirleaf, who, thanks to the great work that Bobby and Jendai had done, was now leading one of the leading dem democracies in Africa at the time. And I sat down with her, her aide came in, Hu, Hu Jintao had been there the, the, the day before, and her aide came in with a Chinese Liberia flag pin. Um, and uh, Ellen, of course, President Sirleaf said, you know, what are you doing? These are the Americans. But I think that shows how things had changed even in that short period of time. Suddenly, the Chinese were much more present, even in a relatively small economy like Liberia. And by the time I was the ambassador of the African Union, my Chinese counterpart was by my side in almost every instance, 
trying to sort of show how engaged the Chinese were across the continent on political, not just economic issues. And so I think that those dates sort of chart the beginning of China becoming a much more active force. And now we're seeing the results of that. Let me just say something on that, John, um, very quickly. We were partly responsible. When we reflect back on the administration, remember, it was our policy to try to bring China into the global order, right, under certain rules. And so I remember I had to spend a lot of time going to Beijing and actually talking to them about different issues because, you know, frankly, Bob Zelik, as the deputy secretary at that time, was pushing that agenda of trying to find a way to peacefully bring China into global institutions as a means, frankly, to, to push that agenda of a better, safer world, right? Bring them into the international trade system. Bring them in to be a responsible player in the international system. But, you know, that might have been possible under Hu Jintao, but Xi Jinping is a whole different person. We did not see China at that time as a malevolent force in Africa. Certainly, we saw their mercantilist approach, their lack of appreciation for what we were trying to do in terms of fighting corruption, things like that as bad things. But we also saw a lot of what they were trying to do in terms of investing in infrastructure and things like that as good things. And that certainly has changed. And then our postscript talks about that. That certainly has changed in the, in the intervening time. All right. So let me go to my last question. So again, we're talking about the book Handoff, the foreign policy George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama. So, okay, there at some point, we're in the Biden administration. There'll someday be another Republican administration. And what I'm going to characterize is perhaps an internationalist Republican administration, like the George W. Bush administration. Are there some principles or themes or ideas that were germinated in the George W. Bush administration vis-a-vis development, vis-a-vis Africa, that a new Republican administration, say that were to assume office in 2025, ought to, to keep in mind. Let me start with you, Jendai. I think that the things that have been said are very clear. And I know Bobby and, and John will have far more to say than I on this. Um, but that respect is absolutely fundamental, right? And understanding that when we come in, we're partners to their effort. They have to be in the driving seat. And so building that partnership, I think, is extremely important in listening to what Africans are saying are the challenges, what they are suggesting as a solutions and figuring out how we can work together. And then the other thing I think is, you know, the Republicans have typically been much more strategic in its understanding of Africa and not treating it as a humanitarian problem. Right. But actually seeing it as a continent that has global importance and working accordingly. So that equality that Bobby was talking about is very important. And you find that many governments in Africa enjoy working with Republicans more for that reason. We're not there lecturing them. We're not not there, you know, making the smaller issues something that when we, we have, a you know, national interests across foreign policy, national security, you know, development, certainly democracy and corruption, all of these issues matter. But we're not there lecturing and we're recognizing that we all have to do better. And how can we in partnership get there? I love it. Thank you, Jenda. I 100% agree. Bobby, okay, so are there some principles or lessons from the George W. Bush administration 
that a, a future Republican administration ought to keep in mind or take from your experience in government as we look forward to say if there was, say, in 2025, a, a new Republican administration, an internationalist Republican administration? You know, I'd say, Dan, uh, just kind of building on Jendai's points, I think, you know, obviously we are all in these, you know, kind of D.C., Africa policy circles, development policy circles. I, in my opinion, the most misunderstood thing about kind of the Bush administration development policy and like what I observed is just the amount of time that the president and the leadership, you know, Condoleezza Rice, Steve Hadley, Colin Powell spent engaging on this issue, on these issues. Right. And so, you know, again, whether we're talking about PEPFAR, whether we're talking about Millennium Challenge Account, whether we're talking about debt relief, these weren't things that, you know, people were just dreaming up and brought in and ran through a process. These came through consistent, persistent, high level engagement. Again, you know, you can just look at how many, as Jendai said, how many leaders did President Bush host in the Oval Office early on to engage with them, by the way, not just about their country, but about the world, you know, get their views on Asia, get their views on Latin America, right? And and through that, get their views about the UN system, get their views about the World Bank, right? And let that then design the policies, right? That then can kind of come through and be and be enduring. And I think, you know, I talked to so many kind of, you know, mid to high level policymakers, and they really think that it's about, you know, kind of having a plan on paper. And I think that engagement at the highest levels, persistent engagement with a, as Jendai said, a strategic lens, right? There's lots of ways that, you know, what, you know, whatever kind of Nigeria can help us globally. And, but if you don't have that lens, you're not going to have that conversation with the Nigerian president, you know, and have that engagement and really understand their view of the world and, and how we need to best engage. And I, I think if you look, I think one of the great things about the book is I think for a lot of development kind of policy folk, I think they're going to be pretty surprised when they see the annex and see how many meetings President Bush personally was engaging in with African heads of state, other development leaders, and how his team was consistently engaging at a high level. And to me, it's like that's the work that's necessary to achieve these things. It's not kind of an idea on paper. I think so many people in this town think it's like it's an idea on paper. And once everybody supports it, it happens. And of course, that's never worked that I've seen. It's it's that persistent high level engagement with that strategic lens. And in some ways it sounds simple, but it's a lot of it's a lot of work by, you know, certainly the president himself or herself, but then all, all the team kind of underneath. And I think one of the things that people see very clearly in the book is how much the president was personally engaged on these issues, not just internally, but externally uh, in the world and, and specifically in Africa. Yeah, I, I was struck in my time in the at USAID and in the Bush administration, how much effort and attention from senior leaders, including President Bush, went into things like Africa policy and development policy, all the things you're saying, 100% agree with you. Dan, the one anecdote I'll give you just because I, we, you know, now that we get to talk about these things more often, I mean, take, for example, Sudan policy. I mean, I, when I was a senior director in the in the second term for President Bush, I, I believe I was the only senior director on the NSC that wrote a weekly memo on Friday directly to the president about where we were on Sudan policy. And every Monday I got back his handwritten notes on my memo. And, and, and his guidance. And I don't, I don't think that's, that, that wasn't happening in even other, in, in other places. So it just, his personal engagement, I think, cannot be uh, overstated at this point. And I think it's, most people don't understand that. And that, that obviously, as Jendai said, just led to so much, so much of, of what happened. I 100% agree with you.
John, thoughts? Yeah, so in addition to what Jen and Bobby said, I think the other important principle, one that unfortunately I don't think has lasted beyond the Bush administration, and when we left the Bush administration, there was a very bipartisan consensus around both development and African policy. And that has frayed somewhat. And I think going forward, I would hope that a future internationalist Republican administration look to rebuild that both on the Hill and across the country. I think that that's essential for the type of work that needs to be done, that it have, you know, it not be thought of being owned by one party or another, but it be thought thought as being something that's an American effort and an American initiative in the context of, of the international community. The second major sort of lesson that I that I think would have to be internalized is how fragile development progress is. And we're seeing this now, for instance, in, in Latin America more so than in Africa. But where you get development progress, that's a that's a treasure that needs to be nurtured and cultivated. And if you do that, then people will see the value of that, uh, you know, neighbors of countries that see countries that are progressing and will try and emulate them. And, and, and it'll, it'll be something that will encourage much more development progress across the region, across the world. And I think too often we have this short term thinking that doesn't recognize, you know, how valuable it is to be able to, to, to help countries make the journey from where so many countries have been to where many countries today that got support 15, 20 years ago are, which is, you know, being full participating productive members of the global economy uh, and, and the international community. All right. Well, let's end it here. This has been great. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. The book is called The Handoff, The Foreign Policy George W. Bush Passed to Barack Obama. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Dan. Well done. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 